0: Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, Seriously Geeky. Episode 133. Eric Curran, the Buddhist Politician. In this episode, we speak with Eric Curran, a Buddhist politician who is running for state legislature in Virginia in 2010. He joins us to discuss the importance of religious freedom how Buddhism has impacted his views as a politician, and the role of controversy in Buddhist politics. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. I'm here today in a interviewing marathon. This is my third interview in the past three days and got two more to go. So I'm getting in the groove here. And today I'm with Eric Curran. He's joining me from Virginia. Thank you, Eric, for taking the time to speak with us. Very glad to be here. Yeah. And just a little background. I actually got an email from your campaign manager who told me that there's some controversy going on. You're running for the 20th District in Virginia for the General Assembly, which is kind of the state-level Congress. I guess you're the Democratic nominee for that position?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Okay, gotcha. There's some controversy because you are a person with multiple faith backgrounds. And, of course, the reason we're speaking with you is because one of them happens to be Buddhism. So this is an interesting controversy because it seems like you're getting some kickback from the community. In fact, I heard that you're getting quite a bit of direct intolerance from people who really don't seem to understand someone that has a multiple-faith background. And your other background is with the Methodist tradition, right?
1: Well, Methodist and Episcopal primarily. My wife now, who was my fiance last week, but we just got married a couple days ago. Congrats. My wife goes to a Methodist church, and I've gone to Episcopal churches for many years. But yes, I... I go to church, and I'm interested in Buddhism, and I do yoga and and a bunch of other stuff, too. But Buddhism has always, for about the last ten years, has held a special place of interest for me. I meditate in the Tibetan tradition, and I've been very interested in uh, Buddhist history and and Buddhist uh, teachings for a long time. So when when you ask about controversy in my race, over the last couple weeks, it has become an issue that... I go to a Christian churches, and I also do Buddhist meditation. And I'm not really sure how widespread the concern has been. There was one man in particular who was actually a fellow Democrat, which was a bit surprising to me, who brought up in a newspaper interview that he thought my religion should be an issue in the campaign, and he wanted to make sure that people knew about it. And so... uh We got a variety of letters to the editor, comments online, communications received directly by my campaign, I would say 80 percent supportive. People saying that religion should not be an issue in a political campaign in the United States, especially in the state of Virginia, where Thomas Jefferson uh, created a very famous document in our Commonwealth, the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, which was passed by the Virginia General Assembly in 1786 and that's the very body uh, that I'm campaigning to become a member of. But Thomas Jefferson in in that document, uh, which is a founding document of the Commonwealth of Virginia, explicitly laid out that there can be no religious test for candidates to public office, that you're basically, it's a non-issue. Your religion or lack of religion cannot be used as a qualification to hold public office. And so... We had many people who apparently strongly hold to the tradition of Thomas Jefferson and to the tradition of religious freedom in the Commonwealth of Virginia who were disappointed, who were surprised, who were in some cases outraged that this fellow and apparently a a small number of people who agreed with him were trying to divide people in our community over the issue of religious faith. And so it's really been very... Heartening to me and on my campaign that so many people came forward supporting me in my community. And then it's been quite heartening as well that the Buddhist community around the United States and even further afield has expressed a great deal of support for me. So I feel like even though this was a trying episode, overall it's turned out to be very positive.
0: And what do you think the core issue is with people who? want to point to your background with the Buddhist tradition. Do you feel like they're afraid that you have non-theistic religious background? What is it going on there?
1: You know, I I can only really guess as to what somebody's motivation is in their own head and in in their own conscience. The interesting thing that that has happened in my race is I'm running in a rural area, which has been strongly Republican for many years. And the incumbent, who was a four-term incumbent, and as people know, I'm sure that uh, incumbency is an advantage in political races. I knew it was going to be a very difficult race running against this incumbent, but three weeks ago he dropped out of the race. It was quite a surprise. Nobody expected him to, to do it. And so, interestingly, it was only a few days after the incumbent dropped out of my race that these criticisms about my religion started to arise. So, before, when I didn't have as much of a, a chance of winning the race as I do now, maybe they regretted that they didn't run. And maybe they thought that if my religious faith became enough of an issue that it would create a space for them to run for this seat, which now all of a sudden looks much more attainable. That's one possible guess I have. The only other possible motivation I can think of is that people are confused and sometimes scared by things they don't understand. And I think when many people hear the word Buddhism in the United States, and particularly in a rural area... They've never met a Buddhist, or someone who was interested in Buddhism. They don't know what people do in, in Buddhist practice. They don't know what Buddhism teaches. They may have seen the Dalai Lama on TV. That may be about it. They may have heard a bunch of rumors and misinformation from their friends, and perhaps in their congregations, their own congregations, that Buddhism is it's exotic, it's foreign, it's it's Asian, and people have a hard time accepting or or understanding something that seems very different from what they're used to. So what I've been trying to do is, I'm trying to walk a fine line. I'm not discussing my religious faith as a qualification to hold office, because that would be taking the religious test that Thomas Jefferson said is unconstitutional in the state of Virginia. But what I am trying to do is relate to other people of faith on a level that we all can share. I think all religious faiths have certain moral tenets in common. They all teach love, they all teach the pursuit of truth, they all teach altruism and caring for your neighbors and your community. And for me, my faith traditions have been a strong impetus for me to run for public office to serve the community. In Buddhism, they have the bodhisattva ideal of serving others, of serving all sentient beings. And in Christianity, they have the example of Jesus and the golden rule and the value of um, uh, loving thy neighbor as as you would yourself. So I feel like whether it's Christianity or Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism or secular humanism, that all of us of different faiths or no faith at all share a common core of values, which, by the way, are American values, and that if we can see faith as something that brings us together on a higher plane, we can make politics a little bit better. And so I have been trying to take this positive message out into the campaign now against those who preach intolerance or who try to divide people using fear of the unknown I strongly oppose bigotry and intolerance, and i said that I'll fight against it wherever it occurs. And I'm trying to be a force to bring people together in this campaign.
0: You mentioned Thomas Jefferson and some of the, I can't remember the name of the the religious test thing that was passed in Virginia, but it sounds like he was a primary figure for you. And One thing I've run across that I found really interesting and relevant to this whole conversation is a a conversation I heard between Stephen Waldman, who's the founder of BeliefNet, and who also wrote a book recently called Founding Faith. And I heard a conversation between he and Krista Tippett on the Speaking of Faith show. In that conversation, he was explaining that the birth of religious tolerance in America wasn't actually a secularist movement like it is now. It was actually brought about by 18th century evangelical Christians. I, mean, I thought that was just incredible. That made me think the history of religious tolerance is really something that's changed over time. It used to be more about protecting other Christians from persecution or other theists from persecution. And now it seems to be more of a secular thing about letting even religions that are radically different in some ways, like Buddhism or even atheism, to be a normal part of the political campaign. And like you're saying, it it's not as though you can use someone's religious or not even having religious ties as a prerequisite for them running for office, that that really should be a non-issue. I was wondering if you could just respond to that perspective and if you have any thoughts on, on how and why this is such a big issue now in our current time.
1: Well, you know, when you look back at many things in the past in America, some of our highest ideals, people may have looked at them a little bit differently when they first came about when we talked about all men being created equal, in the old days, of course, we had slavery. And so we didn't treat all all men or all men and women equally. We defined who was a, a valid person and who wasn't. And now we've expanded that definition. And I think it's it's not just a question of us having a different opinion than they did back then, but I think we're right and they were wrong. Uh, I think things are better in America today than they were back then as far as equal rights. And recognizing the humanity of, of people who are, in fact, humans. It just seems more accurate. And I guess I would say the the same thing about religion, that yes, now in America we have a variety of what I think religious scholar Diana Eck has called new religions. Instead of a lot of different flavors of Christianity, right. now we have a lot of different flavors of spirituality. And so we're not just talking about Baptists and Mennonites versus Episcopalians, Anglicans, and Presbyterians, but we're talking about all sorts of different kinds of Christians, the wonderful variety that you have in Protestant Christianity and even in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, represented in my district, in the 20th district, which is a rural area, but you also have Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs people who practice traditional African faiths, people who practice traditional Chinese religion. You have Christians from Asia, who are sometimes different than Christians from America. You have Protestants from Latin America, who are different from Protestants in America. And then you have uh, secular humanists, and then you have people who are interested in Buddhism. And Jews, of course. In, In my town, for example, we have a synagogue that's nearly 150 years old that was founded by a major in the Confederate Army my hometown of Stanton, and in my district, the 20th District, have a long tradition of of religious tolerance. And I think now, the folks there, who who I find actually not to be particularly stuck in their opinions about religion, but in fact, I find most folks in my area to be quite open-minded, to be independent thinkers. The folks who came to the Shenandoah Valley came from somewhere else, and often many of them were persecuted, just like the Evangelical Christians in the 18th century in the uh, United States, the folks who came to the Shenandoah Valley, some of them were those evangelical Christians. Some were, were Mennonites and Brethren from Pennsylvania. Some were Anabaptists from Germany. Some were Jews. And my area has always put out the welcome mat for folks of different faiths, or folks of, of no faith, or indeterminate faith, like Thomas Jefferson. And so I see that my area is still putting out that welcome mat, and Uh, folks from these newer religions are still being welcomed with open arms. And I think that's a very cheering development for me. It makes me feel like American democracy is working, that our basic values allow us to keep expanding who we consider to be an American, who we consider to be someone that we have more in common with than we have differences between us, and people with whom we are able to hold a civil discussion, with whom we're able to do business with whom we're able to sit on volunteer boards and even visit each other's congregations and talk about each other's faith in a spirit of openness, love, and acceptance of differences. And so, to me, I see that the the fundamental principles on which the United States was founded are flexible enough that they're able to accommodate folks for whom maybe they weren't originally written. And to me, that means that our basic form of government still works.
0: Fantastic. That's a beautiful vision. It's really inspiring. And it sounds like it's really alive, too, which is cool.
1: It really is alive. And, you know, there. unfortunately, there are a few misguided leaders who would attempt to take us back into the past, who would attempt to whip up frenzy, whip up fear, whip up uh, misunderstanding. But I think most people, uh, especially in my area, aren't having it. Most people in my area are, they're friendly, they have a strong sense of community, they do a lot of volunteer work, they like to get along with their neighbors, and I'm seeing that that sort of natural, organic tolerance is very strong force for humanity and for uh, the continued development of, of our area in particular, and I think for, for the United States in general. I'm actually quite optimistic about Americans. I think once we get over our fear of the unknown or the unfamiliar that we're we're pretty good people
0: nice and i'm wondering to what degree because you talked about the bodhisattva vow to what degree have has that and your own buddhist practice encouraged you to want to become a political servant because this is a topic that's not that common in western convert buddhist circles which is actively participating in governance. Usually the sense I get, and this is just a, a broad generalization, but a lot of convert Buddhists that are Westerners tend to have like a little bit of a disdain towards politics, actually, I notice. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about that, too.
1: I think in certain kinds of Buddhism, as I've seen in certain kinds of Christianity, there is a strain of asceticism or withdrawing from the world. Uh, in Buddhism, I've I've met many fine people who are monks and nuns or who've done extended retreats in isolation. And I have so much admiration for these folks who've given up so many things, sometimes marriages and families and, and really satisfying, promising careers in order to devote themselves to contemplation, which, of course, has a very long tradition in Christian monasticism as well. Uh, and so the, these kind of folks I see as sort of the radio towers broadcasting love and compassion around the world and i hope these folks will keep meditating and contemplating with even more energy so that the rest of us can benefit from that as a guy like me with a family and a job i find buddhist practice to be so valuable for me to stay on an even keel for me to keep my priorities straight not to get lost in the day-to-day grind of of stress and challenges and money and You know, I've got to send somebody a fax in the morning, and here's my grocery list. And I think it's possible to fritter away your whole life if you lose sight of your priorities on just everyday junk. That doesn't really matter that much. And so for me, Buddhist practice, as my Christian practice, is a way for me to help center myself, bring myself back to my core values. And what I feel is going to make my existence on Earth worthwhile, which is trying to serve, trying to serve other people, trying to serve my community, in the Buddhist tradition, trying to serve all sentient beings, I find that I'm happier, too, when I'm in this mindset, when I remember my own Buddha nature or my own inner Christ. And so, as far as engagement, you know, I think it's possible to to hold on to the teachings of Jesus, who was able to walk through the marketplace, and to the teachings of Buddha, who was able to Spend time with lay people in all sorts of circumstances, and to traditions of Buddhist practitioners, many of whom have been strong lay people. I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the Himalakirti Sutra, where a Buddhist uh, businessman is questioned on some points of religion, and he's able to give very good answers that really cut through misperceptions or the figure of Marpa in the Tibetan tradition. Marpa was a great Buddhist teacher in the Karmakagu tradition. And Marpa was a family man who had a farm, and because he was successful, he had the financial resources it took to go to India and study with great sages and bring back the teachings of this Buddhist lineage back to Tibet. So there's a strong tradition of Buddhist laypeople, as there is a strong tradition of Buddhist asceticism or monasticism, that inspires me. I'm inspired by both. The monastics inspire me to go home and meditate harder, and the lay people inspire me to approach my everyday life as a practice. So when I'm writing an email, or when I'm holding a a business meeting, or when I'm doing something in government on the campaign trail, or attending a city council meeting, to remember the the Buddhist precepts, to remember to always try to bring wisdom and, and compassion into a situation, and not to get lost in, you know, some very easy traps, some traps of ego or anger or resentment, but to see all the people involved in what may be a, a controversy or a contentious situation as people with Buddha nature, people who have Jesus Christ inside them, and to um, deal with people in good faith.
0: That's beautiful. It sounds, as you're speaking about it, it really reminds me of a uh some of the teachings from Thomas Merton and they're all over the Christian tradition about this relationship between contemplation and action. sounds like you're describing that perfectly from both the Christian and Buddhist perspectives.
1: Yes. Yeah, I really resonate with Thomas
0: Merton. Hmm. Nice. Well, switching gears a little, I wanted to, because you, you're kind of in a unique position. you on the one hand, you're running for political office. You have a really strong familiarity with religion and uh, politics and, and you also wrote a book a few years ago entitled buddha's not smiling uncovering corruption at the heart of tibetan buddhism today the book is on a long-running controversy about there being two karmapas these position that's similar to the dalai lama via reincarnation it's a very important po- position in the Kagyu tradition and you write about this controversy and exploring it and i was wondering given your unique background in american politics how much of the controversy that's going on in in the Tibetan culture with these two different Karmapas has to do with political structures in Tibet, or not in Tibet, but with the Tibetan people?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting question for me, and uh, I'll try and boil it down as interestingly as I can. Uh, My book is filled with lots of Tibetan names, lots of stuff from Tibetan history. Basically, I think, the whole problem with the, this such an unfortunate controversy over the the successor to the 16th Karmapa is I'm sure your listeners know generally speaking high lamas in Tibet are replaced through a, a system of reincarnation, so you have to have a reliable way of deciding well which of one of two or more uh, boys or girls is the reincarnation of the spiritual master who just died, and there's been disagreements about this system in Tibet ever since it arose in the Middle Ages. So it's nothing new for these kind of disagreements to come up. What's new is that it's happened to the Tibetans, unfortunately, while they're in exile outside of their own country. And so many political factors play into it that wouldn't have played into it before in old Tibet. Uh, Of course, now you have the communist Chinese government involved, you have the Indian government involved, and then you have the Dalai Lama's government in exile, which is is a government, and then the Dalai Lama is also a spiritual leader. And, and, and then you have the Karmapa's own sect, which in fact was never under the Dalai Lama in Old Tibet. It was like the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury. You know, the Pope doesn't choose the Archbishop of Canterbury. And even if the Pope was exiled from Rome and the Archbishop was exiled from Canterbury, the Pope still wouldn't choose the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so that's the position of the Lamas who support one of the Karmapa candidates. The position of the other Lamas is well the Dalai Lama's the head of all Tibetans in exile and he has a right to to say who who their religious leader should be so it's it's very confusing for Westerners to look at this from the outside and and I guess when I first learned about it and I was studying with Tibetan Lamas at the time it really turned me off you know I always I always thought of Tibetan Lamas as pretty cuddly you know you just want to give them a big hug they're always smiling and laughing and telling jokes and when they're not doing that they're meditating or chanting and wishing good things for all sentient beings. And so when I heard that they were doing things like taking each other to court over which Lama has the right to possess a monastery in northern India, it really bugged me. And I have to be honest, I was tempted to throw the Buddhist baby out with the Tibetan politics bathwater. But what stopped me from doing that was my Lama telling me, well, you know what, if this bothers you, why don't you investigate it? Look into it for yourself and I'll give you access to court documents and historical documents and monasteries and lamas and eyewitnesses on both sides, and you just do your investigation, and whatever you come up with, that's fine with me, and see for yourself what you think. So I did that, and I think it's really what strengthened my interest in Buddhism. I was very tempted to say, wow, these Tibetan lamas have problems just like everybody else, just like Christian leaders or Muslim leaders or political leaders of of countries. You know, there's corruption and there's scandals, and the temptation is to say, well, then the the religion itself must have something wrong. But what I came to after doing this investigation was, I, I hope, a more mature approach not only to Buddhism but to all religions and really any philosophy just because humans are fallible and human institutions are created by humans, and so they're fallible, doesn't mean that the philosophy or the religion behind them is wrong. Just because of scandals in the Catholic Church or with Protestant ministers doesn't mean that Christianity is wrong. And just because Tibetan lamas disagree over a Karmapa candidate and do some pretty nasty things in the process, like raiding each other's monasteries and beating each other up over the head, it doesn't mean that Tibetan Buddhism is wrong or that it's, it's not a valid path. I think what it does mean is that just because people are interested in Buddhism, that doesn't give them an excuse to put their common sense aside any more than if they were Christian or secular humanists or just people judging folks in government. You know, we all have a responsibility to use our own judgment and to try to separate the honest leaders from those who are misguided we all have a responsibility whether we're religious or not to look at religious leaders and see which of those are trustworthy and which of those are not people we want to follow and in buddhism i actually think we have more of a responsibility because the buddha you know he famously said don't take my word for it be like a goldsmith you pound the gold you taste the gold you tear the gold you melt the gold And you really have to see for yourself if it's still gold. And so the Buddha told us, don't accept Buddhism on faith. Test it for yourself. See if it works for you. See if it's the real deal. And I think sometimes there's a tendency among people who follow Asian Buddhist teachers to get a little bit seduced and to say, wow, this person is so mystical and so accomplished. I'm just going to believe everything they say. And uh, I think that's a trap. I think, as Americans, we're particularly vulnerable to that, because these folks are new to us, and we may not put them to the same standards that we're used to putting our own priests and ministers. And so what I found in my life is it helped me to judge, I think, with more distinction, and to apply the same common-sense standards that I would apply to American politicians or American religious leaders to Asian religious leaders, and I hope that it's it strengthened my faith, I feel like it has, and at the same time, strengthened my common sense. So that's really why I wrote the book. Some folks are going to disagree with the conclusions in my book. I came to the conclusion that was a little bit different from a lot of the stuff that's been written about this controversy, but I don't ask folks to, to agree with me, all I ask is that they look at my evidence, they look at my analysis, and that they judge for themselves. And I tried to include lots of original source documents, stuff from court cases, historical documents, stuff all translated into English by reliable sources so that people can really judge for themselves. And really what I helped to do with this book was help help to put aside this really, as I said before, unfortunate controversy and help people move on to judge for themselves about the situation and then go back to their meditation practice. Because for me, that's really the the heart of Buddhism.
0: Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic dharma provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information, and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community, And join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered. You're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.